America is back, ready to lead the world, not retreat from it. Once again, sit at the head of the table, ready to confront our adversaries and not reject our allies, ready to stand up for our values. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. That clip you heard at the beginning of the episode was a recent foreign policy speech by President-elect Joe Biden outlining his stance towards the world and America's position in it. It's been almost a month, a whole month, since the US elections took place in early November and now that the dust appears to have settled and Biden will take office in January, I wanted to know how a Biden presidency and a different set of foreign policy priorities might affect Japan and the alliance it has had with the US since the end of World War II. Today, my guest is Sheila A. Smith, who is a senior fellow for Japan studies at the New York-based independent think tank, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the author of books including Japan Rearmed, The Politics of Military Power, and Japan's New Politics and the US-Japan Alliance. Sheila joined me from Washington earlier this week to give her take on what a Biden presidency might mean for Japan going forward, where the two countries might find new grounds to cooperate, and the growing pressure on the alliance from an increasingly demanding China. Sheila Smith, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you very much for joining us today and uh, a happy Thanksgiving to you. Thank you, Oscar. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's get straight to it. Joe Biden is set to become president in January, which will put an end to a tumultuous four years under President Trump. But I do want to start this episode by briefly talking about those four years and the administration that's currently still in power. I don't want to dwell on this for too long, but I think it's an important aspect to consider. So, how did Japan see its relationship change with the US under the Trump administration? So we could go, Oscar, all the way through the ins and outs of the last four years. But let me let me just start with the headline, which is Prime Minister Abe took a pretty significant political risk when Donald Trump won the election. And he, prior to Trump becoming president, uh, Abe visited New York and Trump Tower and the, the Golden Golf Club was exchanged. But more than that, there was a personal connection that was made. And I, I think for those of us sitting in Washington, we were all a little taken aback because that's not what you do. You wait till somebody is president before you make that overture. But I think we all understood it was an unprecedented moment. Nobody expected that uh, Donald Trump would win. And so Abe took that risk and it paid off. It paid off for him. It paid off for Japan. And I say that for two reasons. One is there is no doubt that uh, Shinzo Abe had to put up with some deep moments of awkwardness in the in the relationship with Donald Trump. Yes, I think everyone will remember the famous handshake and the eye roll that followed. The handshake and the eye rolling and then there is all kinds of other moments that are less known but 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 I think what he understood what Abe understood is that 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 Trump needed a personal connection. That the long-standing alliance relationship was not what was going to be important to this president. Mm-hmm. What was going to be important is whether or not the Japanese government and Abe in particular was going to be able to navigate the unpredictability uh, that is the Trump era. I think the other thing is that we often think about what um, the prime minister and the president did in terms of accomplishments and what was accomplished. 
to be sure, Abe managed Donald Trump, I think, better than any leader of any American ally mm. in this in this four-year period. And this is a president, as you know, who was anti-alliances, who was really transactional in what he thought about our alliances and tried to put the squeeze on, so to speak, in a little mafia language there. But that's, <laughs> that's the way he approached it. Uh, he really did. He approached our NATO allies that way. He approached uh, President Moon and the, the South Korean government that way. And he did, to a certain extent, approach Abe that way. But what Abe also did, he not only navigated the relationship with Trump, but he also navigated around the United States in ways that I think were really pretty significant. So in trade, obviously, the CPTPP stands out, but so too does the EU-Japan trade relationship. Uh, He navigated around the United States in his relationship with China and in the relationship with Australia and other allies in the Indo-Pacific. And do you think Prime Minister Abe was able to do this because America was absent, because Trump was focusing first and foremost on his America first approach? So I think Japan's interests spoke first and foremost to the Prime Minister. And I, I think that's the way it's always been. Whether you have an active America that is engaged in the region, mm. or you have a, a multilateralist America, which is what we saw under the Obama administration, or whether you saw the America first America under, under President Trump. Um, but what I thought was artful about the way that the Abe cabinet moved forward was he managed to persuade the United States that the alliance was first and foremost Japan's priority. And yet he managed to pursue Japanese interests in a very receptive environment. So Japanese leadership, again, in trade in the Indo-Pacific, really came to the fore under Abe. And I think it was not overshadowed, let's put it that way, uh, by an America that was trying to lead first. And on the American side, what do you think were the biggest departure points between the Trump administration and the Obama administration before it, when it came to the US relationship with Japan? You know, you often hear, uh, especially from Japanese government folks, that uh, the Obama administration was hard because of China policy. Mm. But I, you know, the Trump administration was also hard because of China policy. (laughs) But I, I think that it's a little bit like Goldilocks of the three bears, <laughs> you know, too much American engagement mm. or confrontation with China is not good. Too much American standing back from the problems of China is not good. So trying to get the temperature just right uh, is, is hard if you're looking at that from Tokyo's perspective. And, and that makes sense. But I think the Obama administration did an awful lot to emphasize reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And that's the historical reconciliation that was very much, as you may remember, a part of the regional politics. You know, Obama was president. President Obama oversaw the 2015, the 70th anniversary, and tried to navigate the difficulties in the Japan-South Korean relationship at that time. But he also wanted to make sure that the reconcil- historical reconciliation of the United States and Japan was a model uh, for the rest of the region to see that we could be as adamant adversaries as we were in World War II, and yet we can build this constructive new relationship in the post-war period. And so I think Obama was very focused on this. How do you transform some of these long historical acrimonies into the foundation for a much more constructive relationship or set of relationships in the region. It's early December as we speak, meaning the presidential election was almost a month ago, which I can 
barely believe. Uh, you'll remember the feeling of anticipation and the feeling of chaos around <laughs> that time. I think things have calmed down slightly now. Yeah. But what was Japan's reaction to Joe Biden winning the presidential election? So I, I think uh, Prime Minister Suga, by this time, of course, you've moved from Prime Minister Abe to Japan's had its own transition. As soon as uh, Joe Biden was called as president-elect the next day, that was a Saturday. I remember it well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure. We all came out of suspended animation. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was like, are you kidding? Are we really there? Um, and then the next day, of course, Prime Minister Suga sent his congratulations to President-elect Biden. And then within, uh, uh, I think, less than two weeks, the U.S. allies in Asia were speaking that the Prime Minister of Australia, Japan, and then the President of South Korea were speaking to President-elect Joe Biden on the phone to make sure that they understood or that they were assured of the President-elect's interest in making that the alliances would be uh, re- restored in the language of Mr. Biden, but mm-hmm. would be the, priori- the priority for this new administration going forward. And do you get the sense that the Japanese government was pleased about a Joe Biden victory or do you think they would have actually preferred the continuity of another four years of a Trump presidency? I think like every astute government everywhere, the Japanese government would have been delighted (laughs) no matter who won. (laughs) And I think that's just, I mean, to give credit where credit is due, the Japanese are very good at making sure uh, that they don't intrude into the domestic political process of the United States, but also that they make it very, very clear that they can work with whoever is in power mm-hmm. and that the U.S.-Japan relationship goes beyond partisan boundaries and it is a deeply held tenant here in Washington that actually there's very, very strong bipartisan support for the alliance. So that being said, I suspect there was a little fatigue in Tokyo because it's hard to manage President Trump, even as well as the Japanese government managed President Trump. Uh, They didn't get everything that they wanted. They got a few surprises, as you know. Um, But I'm sure it kept everybody in Tokyo on their toes every day, all the time. And I feel like this doesn't really need asking, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, I guess Japan's thinking is that Biden will be a much more predictable president to work with than Trump ever was. I think the process, I think the process of governing, the process of our foreign policy formulation will go back to a more predictable process. Mm. Um, And I anticipate one of the things I think that's often not understood outside of D.C. and Tokyo is that a lot of foreign policy positions remained unfilled for a long time under the uh, President Trump. The, it, it took a long time, and in some cases it was a deliberate effort, but it took a long time to get people positioned to carry out alliance policy. In some cases, the principals, the Secretary of State early on, the National Security Advisor earlier than that, uh, changed right mm-hmm. quite rapidly. So, um, And then our Secretary of Defense has changed as well. So when you have that level of high turnover at the cabinet level and then the people below it who implement policy, it becomes very hard to have a sustainable, predictable process mm-hmm. of alliance coordination. So that was one factor. And the other, of course, was just simply the unpredictability of the president. Something that's been written about in our paper, though, is that there is somewhat of a perception that Republicans favour Japan and are more favourable to Japan and the alliance between the US than the Democrats are. 
or have been over the decades the alliance has been in place. Do you believe that to be the case? No, (laughs) I don't. And I would actually flip it, Oscar. I think it's the other way around. I think it's that Tokyo perceives Republicans as being more firmly in the corner of the alliance. But I'm not an anti-Republican or an anti-Democrat for that matter, but but I kind of try to point out historically. So we've had some ups and downs in the U.S.-Japan relationship, if you take the long view Mm -hmm. over the post-war period. And some of the sharpest moments of disconnect in the alliance were under both. You had them under Republicans. You had them when Jimmy Carter, a Democrat, said he's going to take his second division out of Korea. You know, there, there, there are moments where we come up with ideas and the Japanese are startled. And uh, I think the Nixon shocks in 70 are probably the deepest cut to the relationship in terms of the confidence of political and, and bureaucratic leaders in Tokyo. But more recently, I, I do think you hear a lot of commentary among my friends and in the, in the media in Japan, as well as among government officials that Republicans are more predictable. And I, I rub my chin and say, hmm, really? Because <laughs> we're just coming out of a four-year Republican term that doesn't sound, wasn't the most predictable. But I think there's a, there's another piece and it's not a, it's not a, as flip as all that. It's really about, I think as an ally of the United States who relies on the United States for strategic protection, uh, governments that like strong militaries here in Washington Mm -hmm. tend to be uh, a little bit of a relief uh, to Japanese strategic planners. So in that sense, that that makes sense. Republicans tend to want to spend more money on the military. And I think today, especially as China and North Korea pose such a conundrum for Japanese those strategic thinkers that a steady, strong, hard power America is, is, is welcome. In January, President-elect Joe Biden will become President Joe Biden. So how will his approach to foreign policy likely be different to Trump's and what kind of experiences he has he got there? So I think, you know, is it... Joe Biden has been on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He has been vice president. He understands foreign policy. He understands the need for the United States to engage and be forward-leaning in its foreign policy and its engagement. I think coming in the wake of Trump, the Trump era, I think he has used the language of restoration. And by that, what he means is we shouldn't go it alone we need to have our friends and allies. We need to have a coalition when it comes to solving problems. We need a coalition approach, be it the you know more assertive China, be it climate change, be it the pandemic, you know, be it the complex issues that the rest of the world has to also deal with. So mm. I think that's the basic big brushstroke approach of, of, of a, a president-elect Biden. The second piece is the team that he's putting together. And I think that's that's important. Mm. Uh, Tony Blinken or Anthony, Anthony Blinken was deputy secretary of state um, in the second Obama administration. He's very well known in Washington. He believes in diplomacy deeply. Um, and of course, he served in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which is where I believe he and, and Joe Biden began their career together many decades ago. And so you've got a diplomat's diplomat as the nominee for the Secretary of State. So I think you're going to this is going to be a team that, that the Japanese government will know well mm-hmm. uh, and have uh, deep ties and ability to communicate with effectively. And when Joe Biden considers his approach to foreign policy in the region, do you think 
that approach will be more similar to the one taken by President Obama, considering the familiar faces that are being chosen from that administration? Or do you think you'll incorporate elements of President Trump's approach to foreign policy? And I ask that because I think Trump's approach to China in particular gained a lot of support in Japan, whereas for at least part of his term, Obama was perceived as being too friendly toward China for Japan's liking. So here's where I think there there are going to be some things uh, where um, President-elect Biden and his team will have to deal with the reality that is today, not the mm-hmm. reality that was four years ago or eight years ago during President Obama's time in office. Um, it, it, China today is not the China it was in 2016. It wasn't the China it was in, in, in 2012 and 2008. So we have a much more complex and I would say a much more contentious relationship with the People's Republic of China. Um, I still, I think that President-elect Biden has made it clear that there are certain global problems that he hopes to work with China on. Pandemic, obviously, first and foremost. Climate change, as you know, he's appointed John Kerry as the climate czar, so he's elevated climate change Mm -hmm. uh, as a global uh, initiative or at least a global priority of the United States. But, but, you know, in our bilateral relationship with China, there's a whole host of issues uh, that will be hard. And I, I doubt that he's going to roll back things because they belong to the administration of President Trump. Mm -hmm. I think what's going to happen is that there's going to be a very systematic and careful look at our policies toward China. I think the first thing that that President-elect Biden is going to do that may be different than President Trump is he's going to build a coalition of partners and figure out where we uh, we as a coalition, be it our Japanese, our South Korean, our Australian allies and partners, be it India, be it NATO countries in Europe, where we as a coalition need to come together to really confront what we see as, as some of the export of China's more authoritarian tendencies. So I think that coalition building is going to distinguish the Biden administration from the Trump administration. If that's the case, then a focus of Biden's foreign policy will be on building coalitions. What do we know of the relationship between President-elect Biden and Prime Minister Suga? Because both are political veterans that have had top positions in previous administrations that have worked closely together. Biden was obviously vice president under Obama and Suga was the right-hand man to Prime Minister Abe before him in his role as chief cabinet secretary. So what do we know of the relationship between the two? So uh, they they know each other, they've met. Um, I think one of the critical issues, obviously, that they uh, shared together or that they lived through together um, was the question of the 2015 uh, Comfort Women Agreement. And of course, Prime Minister Abe and President Obama took the lead in that, but at the implementation phase, uh, Vice President Biden at the time uh, also had a, a role to play and, and Chief Cabinet Secretary Suga had a similar role to play in the communications between the two countries. So I, I think they've they've overlapped, they've shared a conversation, they have a similar, they shared a knowledge of the background of that particular trilateral relationship, but I suspect it's, it's bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, will they get along? I think in style, they certainly seem to me on the outside. They're both uh, pragmatic, low-key um, personalities, seem very attuned to each other. Sugasan's style is very 
um, let's get to the heart of the issue and let's fix it together. And I think President Biden is going to be the same. And I, I believe they've already spoken about the possibility of Prime Minister Suga visiting in February. Of course, that will all depend on our pandemic and what will be allowed or not allowed. Uh, but I think in principle, there's a decision to have an early meeting as early as the pandemic will allow and to make sure that the alliance is on a firm and solid footing. Do you think it's somewhat advantageous then that when Biden enters office, both Japan and America will have fairly recently changed their leadership within just a couple of months of each other and that this will allow for a fresh start to the relationship? I think given given that particular relationship between Prime Minister Abe and President Trump, and um, how important that was to the relationship. I think for either leader, um, it would have been difficult to adjust to the next one, right? Mm -hmm. I I think it would have been done. I think probably I will say the Japanese side would have been more gracious (laughs) had it been different. Um, I I can't say anything about uh, President Trump because, as you know, he's somewhat irascible and we don't really know how he (laughs) behaves. Um, But but I think in some ways it it, it allows a kind of deep breath and a fresh start and uh, predictability, I think. Both sides, I think, want greater predictability, at least at the process level. Uh, of this relationship. Let's get back to kind of the normal way in which we manage our alliances. And I think, to be honest with you, Sugasan has given some very strong signals to the region as well since he became prime minister. So his visit to Hanoi and Jakarta, his address to the ASEAN summit, uh, the agreement with Australia, all of those are really, really positive signs. And I'm sure that the Biden administration has taken that on board. So I think there's a lot of substantive signals that we are all on the same page. There's a lot of unknowns in the region that we'll have to be ready for. But I think in the big picture, both the way in which the United States and Japan want to proceed in the region and also the the way in which we have common interests and goals, I think that I feel quite reassured. Under a Biden-Suga-driven alliance, where do you think we'll likely see more cooperation between the two countries over the coming four years or perhaps longer? Well, it was interesting to me to hear uh, Prime Minister Suga talk about Japan being carbon neutral by 2050. And I think a lot of people said, oh, okay, so maybe climate change, maybe these large global issues is a place where Japanese and American, we can put, kind of put our shoulders together and be an engine of um, sort of renewed global collaboration. And I think there's lots of opportunity there. Um, there's a lot of power in that relationship. There's a lot of expertise. There's a lot of scientific knowledge. There's a lot of catalytic energy. Hmm. So I think there's a, there's a lot of opportunity here um, for the United States and Japan not to be looking just at each other, but to be looking outwards to what we can do for the rest of the world or with the rest of the world. And goodness gracious, we need it right now in the middle of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, as an American sitting here, I, we, uh, my country needs it. Um, but I, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole human community out there that needs the the energy and expertise and commitment from Japan, the United States. And I think that's somewhere we often underestimate the power of our partnership. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I, you know, the region, obviously, you know, the Indo-Pacific vision that Mr. Abe put forward and Mr. Suga continues to support, um, there's a huge demand there for the United States to up its game. And I hope that, I hope the Biden administration is ready for it. Um, we at 
you know, China's pressure today on Australia, be it, you know, just a whole host of areas where the absence of America, America's full attention is really a problem, I think. And I think the Japanese government will be very happy to see us back in the game in a really forward-leaning posture there. That's an interesting point, and I want to bring in something now that I'd actually plan to ask a little bit later on, but I think slots in quite nicely here. As much as Biden may want to have a very active foreign policy and engage and cooperate with countries like Japan and others in the region, there's also a huge amount that he's going to have to deal with and focus on domestically, whether that's his response to the COVID pandemic or trying to unite a polarized society. And I think he'll need to prioritize that very early on in his administration if he's going to have success elsewhere. So how active do you think the US will actually be able to be in its foreign policy, even with the best intentions to be, when there is still so much that has to be focused on domestically. So that's the, that's the big challenge. And that's going to be a challenge that nobody outside the country, let alone the Japanese government or prime minister, um, can really help us with. But I think the United States' major challenge here is going to be at home. And that's not, that's not a Republican-Democrat tension. That's a urban-rural divide. That's the obvious breakdown of public confidence in our government in terms of the management of the pandemic. There's an awful lot of trust building that's going to have to happen. And that will take time. I'm not sure one election is going to do it. And that's the only thing I would say to our allies and partners abroad is that where you may find that your goals are very congruent and very complementary and supportive of what our Biden administration is going to put forward, because I do think there this is a, this is going to be a, a government that wants to work alongside others, uh, not on our own. Um, but I think the 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 consensus, the power of the consensus at home, may take some time to rebuild on that. And here's the challenge: the challenge I think for the Biden administration is going to be to demonstrate to the American people that being globally active, being globally engaged, working with our partners is rewarding to the American people. So I think the president-elect and his team are going to have to not only convince the rest of you out there and the rest of the world that we are back, and we're back in a reliable way, um, but he's also going to have to demonstrate to the American people that that matters for them. But that question must surely be weighing on Japan as well. So how do you think the government here is thinking and factoring that into their strategic planning? I don't know. I mean, I have no, I, I have no doubt that folks in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, or the foreign policy thinkers writ large, be they in the government or out of the government, that they understand that this is going to take time for the United States to, to forge a, a new consensus. Um, they also saw the election results, and these are the experts, right? They saw the 71 million versus the 74 million or the 74 million versus the 80 million. I can't remember where we are in the numbers anymore. But in any case, this is not a country that is 80% one way and 20% the other. We are 51% one way and 49% the other. Uh, and that's not that's not a Trump phenomenon. That's just the reality of American politics. And so... I think the experts know this, or people who know America well also know this, but that doesn't mean that we can predict, they can predict any more than I can where we're headed next. I think for me as an observer of American foreign policy and our allies' response to it, that's the part for me that's quite interesting. It's not just how we build our new consensus over mm. what our foreign policy objectives should be. It's also how others 
now react to the legacy that was the great unpredictability of the United States in the last four years. And uh, so many Japanese experts have said to me, well, we don't have a plan B. You know, we don't have an alternative to the alliance. But I see the thinking is not as inflexible as that. I, I think your, the foreign policy elite in Tokyo have begun to see that there's other coalitions that need to be built. I don't think it's a hedge in the, in the sense that it's between us and China. I think rather that there, some energy needs to be put into building relationships as complementary and as a backup mm. in case the United States decides it doesn't want the relationship that it's had for the last 70 years with its allies. I want to try and close with a, another fairly big question. So do you think that the Japan-US relationship will become more important to the region going forward? Or do you think that with everything that's gone on under Trump over the last four years and with a more active China, Japan will look to become more of a standalone nation, looking more towards building other partnerships along the lines that you've mentioned so far? I have a strong belief in the power of the U.S.-Japan partnership. And I, I say that because of the 70 plus years in which we have had some setbacks, differences, some of them pretty severe. And yet we've refashioned our relationship to make it more palatable to our domestic publics, be they in Japan or they be they here. I, we can do it again. The, the, the real two things, um, I think two or three things kind of um, stand out for me. One is the, the China piece. And it would be nice if I could say I think we are always at the end uh, in the right place when it comes to China. But in fact, our national interests on China uh, kind of modulate and somewhat out of sync from each other. So if you think about, again, I alluded to the Nixon shocks earlier on, right, when we opened up without telling our Japanese allies. Then there was Tiananmen, fast forward Tiananmen and uh, Japan, and uh, we were out of sync on the how to respond to Tiananmen. We got back on sync. But now we have a China that's a very different China, I think. Now we have China that is that has ambitions that in some ways are not can't be ignored. And they are in competition with ours. Mm -hmm. So I think we are up for a period and perhaps a sustained period. I don't think we are headed to a Cold War, or I hope we're not anyway. I don't think that model applies here. Um, but I think we're in for a sustained period of strategic competition. I think there's going to be more stress and strain. There's going to be more flexing of muscles. There's going to be more potential for coercive behavior on the part of the Chinese. I mean, look at what they're doing with Australia right now. Mm -hmm. But we may, we with Tokyo may modulate our overtures and nego negotiations and bargaining with China in, in different ways. And that could set us up for some skepticism on both sides about what the each of the other's motive is. So China is a real challenge. It's a hard problem. And it, we shouldn't expect that we're always going to be on the same page at the same time. Mm -hmm. The last piece, and this is a more, uh, comes out of my recent book and something I've been thinking about for a long time, and that is the U.S.-Japan alliance has never really had to coordinate our use of force. We have not been a war-fighting alliance. We have been a deterrent 
alliance. And I think we are sneaking right up to the line where the Chinese are putting pressure on Japan and on us, and they're going to see if we're going to blink. And what do you mean by that? It's the first time where Japan could be the first target of some kind of provocation, be it a gray zone or some other. And the United States will have to go, hmm, do I really want to go there at the risk of a full-on war with China? Mm. At some point, there's going to be a test of that. And uh, we're not. Sh- I'm not sure yet we're ready mm. for that test. And I think on both sides, uh, we're going to have to spend some political capital on making sure we're ready when the time comes. But I wonder if Japan will be looking at the legacy of Trump and you know the fact that Joe Biden will probably have to spend a lot of time dealing with domestic issues and say, you know, we've really got to stand on our own two feet a little bit more than we have done in previous decades. I think Japan has been going there before that, before you got to Trump. I mean, I, I think you also had eight years of Prime Minister Abe and a political foundation under that cabinet, uh, the supermajority in the in the House of Representatives that allowed him to do the changes that he did uh, on the security side. But, you know, the, the bottom line is we live in the nuclear era. And unless Japan... Uh, and I don't think this is in the cards for all kinds of reasons that we'd have to have another podcast mm-hmm. to talk about. Um, <laughs> um, but I don't think it, when you say going it alone in the nuclear era, you're meaning you, you really are talking about replacing the American nuclear deterrent. And um, I don't think that's the priority of the Japanese people. And I don't think for Japanese strategic planners, they see that as a uh, a, a desired replacement to the American nuclear guarantee. So I still think we're in the game with this, in the game together. Uh, I think the flip side, Oscar, that we rarely talk about, we talk about Japan going it alone, but is America ready to go it alone in, in, in in the Pacific? And it's important that our listeners understand that our forward deployed forces in Japan allow the Pacific fleet to operate um, at extended distances without the U S bases and without the support that Japan provides in maintenance and repair and ports, et cetera, um, the United States would not be able to operate at distance in the Indo-Pacific the way it does today. And so we are both strategically dependent on each other. Um, but the, the obvious question is the, is the nuclear question and, and the deterrence that the, the nuclear umbrella provides. And so I think we're in this for the long haul. I hope we're smart enough to adapt and be out ahead of the challenges that China or or North Korea could present with, present us with, and and so that will take a serious political conversation. Mm, I feel like we've ended up at quite an interesting place where I'd come into this podcast expecting it to be a conversation about how Biden would be different from Trump when it came to foreign policy, mm-hmm. but I'm leaving it with the impression that China's influence in the region places a whole new set of limits on how both Japan and America can act at the moment and has as much effect as whoever the leaders are of those two countries. It does. Well, Sheila, I'm going to wrap up the conversation there. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. You're welcome, Oscar. Happy to be with you. That was Sheila A. Smith, Senior Fellow for Japan Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. My thanks to her for joining us today and to you for listening. That's it for today's episode of Deep Dive. Links to background reading are in the show notes as per usual, both in your podcast player and on our website. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. 
Hned bych. Hoď s karizama. Hoď